Welcome to today's episode of The Square. We're having a curious conversation with Laura Lesmes and Frederick Helberg. Uh, you guys are the founders and directors of Space Popular. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Yeah, here. great to be here. Uh, you know, I have so many different questions that I kind of want to jump in with and um, and looking at just the broad base of work and the the creativity. But but before we get into that, I, I have to know a little bit more about your why. So, Laura, why don't you tell us, like, what is what is it about being a designer and what you do that is fulfilling versus any other job out there? I guess it uh, it kind of just happens and you cannot imagine any other way of uh, of going about uh, your life. We both started through teaching and I must say that that was uh, that was just really interesting from the point of view of like having to communicate and work with others uh, and I think from then on to running a studio it sort of felt quite quite a natural uh, transition now we do both things in parallel. Um, but yeah, having the, the possibility of pursuing the research on the things that interest us and uh, even with all the difficulties running our own studio is, uh, is incredible. Why Space Popular? Where did that, where did that name come from? Then the name came from, I think, the, the word popular, I guess, kind of came first. Like we were, we, I mean, it took us like a lot of designers, people that have the names their own work right um took us two years i think to arrive at the not to say that this name is so great but the but i think it started with the idea of thinking about what's the most important part of the work and the word popular obviously carries a lot of strange connotations and stuff but the but kind of people centered work and centered around what actually what people enjoy or what people like um, and to have that in the name we thought would kind of focus the attention on on not necessarily try to not be elitistic or not be kind of uh, fancy unnecessarily fancy but like imagining just just if you think about creative work and like what what is popular what do people actually like yeah that's somehow the space we want to be in um, but it actually, like, I think Lara arrived first at the, the acronym SPOP, which we, we try to use as much as we can because you can apply it to anything. Should we SPOP it or there's a SPOPy or. <laughs> I love that. I, I, I noticed from, you know, your website and some of the research I did there, you know, was, you know a lot of people have, a a vein of design that they kind of stay in. And it's almost like you intentionally don't have a vein of design. I mean, you 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 have done everything from interiors and architecture to furniture to installations and um, activations, as well as the virtual space. What for you? What is the the core foundation of all these different expressions of design? Yeah, I, I guess it's not. A it's not a very wise uh, business uh, path that we have chosen. We like doing everything and not specializing. Um, but I guess we can't, we can't help it. Um, but uh, at the core, and, and I mean, we do quite a fair bit of reflecting on our own work when we get to lecture and also writing and so on. And at the core, we always consider that um, 
there is sort of two aspects. Uh, one is uh, experience-centered design, uh, like basically you are designing from the human point of view and also from the point of view of the mind, like what things will mean to somebody and how will they will be read or interpreted. Uh, that that is at the core of like almost like when we are designing a spa in Thailand or when we are designing a, a virtual space, we are applying the same criteria. And then in terms of how things are made, and then also this applies to physical and virtual things, um, that, that to develop the, or to resolve design in system-based thinking, that you resolve something that doesn't work just for that project, but you resolve it at a sort of almost like universal system kind of level. I would say that that's what most of our, our work uh, really has in common across, across the board. Yeah, and also the the sort of urge for the work itself, like the actual doing the work, is at least half or ideally more of the of the pleasure of mm -hmm. the work. That like if the pleasure is not then the reward you get once the work is done, but but it's actually the actual process of doing it. And I think we've then quite intuitively sort of either pushed for certain kinds of projects or worked in certain kinds of way where the work itself has been stimulated because some, somehow it's like, it's obviously not as direct as like a chef or a musician or something like right. that, where like you do it in real time as a designer, you don't almost do anything in real time. Like you compress a month or a year or five years in some cases into a thing that you can go into or that you can touch or something. But somehow it remains like the way that, you know, if a musician didn't enjoy playing it, you can hear it. And, and somehow there is something, something there too for a designer or an architect. And we've tried to then, you know, just do work that is actually fun, fun to do. Um, having said that, as Lara said, it's doesn't mean that <laughs> it ends up being clever for like actually building a company. But right. we have been extremely willing to compromise that goal for, for the goal of having, having good time doing it and feeling a true sense of, you know, personal purpose with, with the work. Well, and I, that's definitely reflected in the work that you've done because the work that you've done is, is beautiful. And it, it, um, I, I can't, I don't think, I don't think you can look at some of the pieces and some of the projects that you've worked on and not see immediately your passion for the work come out is do you uh, how often are you going into a project with an idea already or a a, a, a a dimly seeing in the mirror if you will of what it's going to be like at the end and how often is it just simply a journey and when you get there you realize you've gotten there it's, it's always the second we really we never really know where we're getting ourselves into it's impossible no i mean how could you know um what is going to be that quickly very often you need to figure out the formats um of a project so that's the thing that we have been facing a lot uh lately and that you're gonna get a commission for an artwork and maybe quite early on you need to figure out like really how it's going to be formatted so you can uh, and check visibility, budget, and so on quite early on. And we have learned to be able to separate that. 
right? Like how is something going to be constructed? How can we cost it and so on? And then what is all the research we want to do? And uh, how do we want to do that? And where will that lead us? So almost separating format from content has been very helpful because, of, I mean, you cannot have 100% uncertainty because then you would need to self-commission all projects. For sure. Very hard to get commissions for like whatever will be. But um, yeah, I think otherwise it's, we have learned to be comfortable with the uncertainty of what a project will end up being and be patient um, with, with that process. So what is that process? Because it's, it's incredible to hear you say patience because I think patience gets overlooked so often in the creative process. Patience is often the last thing people want, whether, whether you're on the client or the artist side. What is your inspiration process look like? How, how do you, how do you get inspired? How do you, you know, follow through in a, in a project to get to an end work? Yeah, I think, I think at least some of that probably comes from, from, uh, having studied architecture. I mean, like architects quite often have out of necessity an enormous amount of patience mm -hmm. Due to the fact, I mean, many other professions too, obviously, where it takes a long time to realize something and where the actual work itself day to day can be extremely tedious and it's difficult to see how the thing you did this month fits in with what it's actually eventually going sure. to be. And I think that also reflects in, in the way that people, architects talk to each other, the way they listen to each other and like the most boring thing in the world can be an architecture lecture and you have hundreds of people sitting listening with <laughs> with an incredible amount of patience <laughs> um so i think i think probably that kind of connected with the longevity of or sort of the, the length and the span that uh, designers generally but again coming back to just thinking about the way an architect might have to think that a lot of the inspiration of, often comes from thinking quite far and wide, like where a lot of the research projects that we have been working on that are kind of semi-self-initiated or comes from commissions from museums or galleries that deals with research, looking at the future of spatial experience, looking like 50 years into the future, where actually a lot of the inspiration comes from imagining being there if we live that long and then seeing how the work we're doing now either has relevance or influence or not even that, but just kind of thinking about these much, much longer time frames, um, actually is really inspirational for even the day-to-day -day work that might be, uh, you know, might not always be super fun all the time. Yeah. What's the collaboration like? How does that work between the two of you? Yeah. So I think that when, when you work with someone that's also a part of your life, even more than a coworker would be, um, you find other ways to communicate, which is both good. Like, I think we have a working method as you, you know, when you hear stories of Charles and Ray Eames or, or other like life and professional collaborators that found ways to exchange ideas that go beyond the usual, um, kind of communication methods. It's both good and bad because in the end, the communication 
can be extremely fluent and you can like exchange ideas in ways that you can't with other people. Uh, but it also means that like the communication with people outside of that little partnership, that by necessity needs to find another language. Right. Um, and that's something that we're still, still learning. And as we're, as you, you mentioned, and uh, this complimenting us, uh, which we really appreciate on the range of projects that we've been doing. Um, a lot of them are getting bigger and bigger, especially the ones that are sort of artworks or driven, driven more as kind of working with collaborators from galleries and museums, uh, solo commissions where collaborations go to musicians or people in film, performers, um, this kind of collaboration communication systems well uh, kind of are evolving, which is actually really exciting. Is there, are there projects that stand out? And I realize, um, I'm, I'm a little bit asking you to pick a favorite child here. Um, but are there projects that stand out to you, um, either because of the inspiration process or what it means to the community around it, or it allowed you to try a different technique? Is there, are there projects that stand out to you as, I won't use the word favorites, but let's call them milestone projects for you. <laughs> I guess, I mean, I love some of the competition work that we did, even though those were unrealized, but I guess, um, I mean, it was a, a big moment was, uh, building our first building, uh, which was here in Spain, in Valencia. And that was, uh, it, we love that one because of the whole process, uh, itself, especially the construction process. That was the brick vault house. Yes, yes, thank you. I, yeah. And um, we worked with the craftsmen and we established very long lasting relationships uh, with craftsmen with whom we continued to do research and, and like potentially some projects on the pipeline on that regard um, that has been very fulfilling. And I guess then as well, um, uh, a virtual project, Archia, for Fundacion Archia here in Spain as well was very fulfilling in the sense of, uh, uh, I mean, it was this, uh, virtual, uh, conference space, um, in, in 2020, and it was incredibly fulfilling to be able to deliver something like that at that specific time and something that, I mean, no one would have. Been. You know, it opened in during the pandemic and that's why they did it through a virtual platform. Mm. And it was the very early days of like joining in as avatars for people who maybe was joining from a phone or for right. personal computer, not a gaming computer or anything like that. And making that possible. And the moment when we were testing out how many people could actually join that space without it crashing was one of this, uh, rush moment <laughs> that was like, oh my God, it's happening. That it's like, look how many people, the sound is a disaster because <laughs> awesome. this is incredible. We're all here. It's truly a feeling you can't appreciate until you've been put in that position. I 100% agree with you. <laughs> Frederick, how about for you? Yeah, I, I completely agree. It was a very special to us, those, those projects. Especially maybe one project that we keep coming back to is the first project we ever did when we were you know, in our 20s and we were thinking about you know, what kind of work do we want to do. And we did a speculative project, which is a competition for kind of an ideas competition, but we designed this, uh, 
kind of virtual platform, but it was before virtual platforms was a, I mean, there were websites obviously, but like this kind of idea of a three-dimensional space that you can enter beyond gaming was something that we didn't know how to do, but we did a project called the cloud resilience, which is 2012 or something, um, which was, it kind of links a lot to the interest that we've had then for the whole running of our studio. And this project was, uh, it was at the same time as it was a, it was a database for global mortality rates. So it was the, the project was about, about kind of figuring out a way to a new way of interacting with people that have passed away. So we created a, a database, which created this kind of spatial diagram where each deceased person, no matter how they passed away would be a a single node. So it was a diagram and also a place where like you could virtually attend a memorial service or a funeral. And we just produced a very short film to describe this idea. And somehow we come back to it again and again and again. It's kind of interesting that it's the first first project we did. I think that uh, you you set a high bar for yourself right out of the right out of the gate. <laughs> um, I did want to ask you because I I was when I was looking through uh, some of the photography from the Brick Vault House, light played an obvious role, a very prominent role. It seems like in that design. What what was your thought process for that? Um, well, it was after we figured out what the construction system would be, and like, yes, we are going to work with brick vaults, and because of the uh, times of that, it's relatively slow. We were not going to have a huge team, and it's a very craft uh, handmade process, so it was going to be slow. Then combine that with uh, something that was incredibly fast. That was the, this very slim metal structure that was put together in like three days or something like that um, and then once that was figured out then it all came down to um, to really solving the puzzle of uh, how much could be built in the plot it's really maxed out the client really wanted that to fit as much as possible in it and um, and then that together with how can we in that climate open up as much as possible while having most windows um covered from the sun in summer while trying to have lighting through the winter. So it was very much a geometric puzzle and it works beautifully like that because uh, in most sides of the house, you uh, it's mostly facing south, which I always think it's crazy in, in such a climate. Um, but because all the windows are covered and in, sun, in, in the summer you have more vertical sun, it, uh, it's working really well. Uh, in terms of um, climate. So that is what I think creates um, really nice lighting. Also the fact that you have the, um, some covered areas that are paved with um, with kind of almost quite bright floor. Yeah. Then even though you have a lot of covering, you're still reflecting in a lot of light. Yeah. But all the light is very diffuse. And then you have the warmth of the bolts. Um, so it, it was a really nice process to realize that like you can from uh, literally the construction method itself you can derive so many other properties well and when it, when you read you know when you hear the project is the brick vault house you think 
brick and it's heavy and vault, you know, you, you yeah. don't think light and airy, which is exactly what the design ended up being, which I, I loved about that. <laughs> now I, I want to make uh, brick vault structures that are sitting on cardboard. Yeah. Maybe uh, the next challenge, like literally <laughs> structure on cardboard. So yeah, that's the sort of that happened. dream, dream project. I mean, the, these brick vaults, I mean, most people don't really know the backstory. It's really, really interesting, actually. It's this technique of kind of interlocking brick vault systems actually comes from this part of Spain. And it was really kind of um, mastered by this uh, this guy, Rafael Guastavino. Well mastered. He was the clever guy who took it yeah, well, in the U.S. and patented it. Oh, there you he go. He was from, okay, from here now. And he, he went to the U.S. and actually most of the sort of, or a lot, hundreds of them, like train stations, civic buildings, Boston all, City Library, all around the U.S., especially on the east east side, uh, are built by, by the Spanish architect who, who worked with this very specific brick vault laying technique. And the, the very unique thing is that you can make it extremely thin. Like usually when you think of a brick vault that's load bearing, you think you're really big and thick. Right. This is extremely thin and it doesn't require any scaffolding as you're building it, which is, we were really, really keen on the fact that you could build something like that where you know, normally if you do either a concrete construction or a brick construction, right, you need to build a building before to build a building on. Yeah. Our work. And in this case, the actual building itself was the formwork. Yeah. And which is it's so exciting to think. But was the scaffolding more than the, yeah. and these vaults are six centimeters thick, so they are very light. Yes. You can helicopter them in, in fact, has been done in Cuba. Yeah. Very uh, interesting experiments. They're, they're the... We could do a whole other conversation on that. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so I, I guess I'm curious, you know, again, with the, the broad base of projects that you've done, is there one that you haven't done that you were super keen to do? Oh, that's interesting. I think I think maybe there are two main things that were really like bigger projects that we're really keen on doing and with our work with virtual spaces and virtual, virtual architecture we've done a lot of research and writing and uh, work with uh, with universities on the question of civic spaces or public spaces that are virtual and we're not alone, alone in this there's a lot of groups and, and organizations that are working towards thinking about what does it mean to have a public space in a virtual environment that I guess they kind of to be either involved or or in some way in the sort of building of of the virtual of virtual urbanism in in the more public sense of the word is like really a project that it will happen in some way or another and that we're just kind of dying to be involved basically like you know at the moment the virtual environment um or the immersive internet as we choose to call it most people call it the metaverse we choose not to call it that but it's essentially like a densely packed shopping mall with no public space in between. And the moment when they start to be pushed apart and there's public space in between, we really hope that we we can be there to help design some of that. Like yeah. they won't look like sidewalks, but maybe they will function like sidewalks. And what would they look like? And that's like mm. really exciting for us to imagine being a part of that. I love that. And uh, so I mentioned too. Yeah. The other thing is. is uh, we're in the process of like reorganizing the way we work and stuff. So, building our own our own studio, <laughs> a new studio, uh, where a lot of the VR work we're doing and prototyping can happen in house. That's 
both in life and and uh, in, in practice something we're really excited about. I'm I'm curious just because it's been such a uh, a prominent topic in in the headlines lately. How have you seen you know when it comes to generative AI? And of course, there's the you know the you know there's things like Stable Diffusion and Midjourney and ChatGPT and some of the big names out there. But we've we've been doing a lot of kind of digging on our side of how we can take the idea of generative AI and use it as a tool, which is the way I feel like it should be used. It's you know it's something that's just like any other tool out there. It's an incredible tool, but it's a tool and it needs a person to wield it. We've been finding really interesting ways of not just helping with workflow and process, but actually helping us with our creativity and being being something that we can iterate, you know, design. How, how, have you been, you know, in, have you been investigating in that? How have you been looking at using it? Yes, we we actually started talking about this a bit in the, in a in an artwork an exhibition that opened in the auspicious date of February 2020. It was open for three weeks. That um, project that we worked on uh, for a couple of years. Well, we showed it in in many other ways. It's called Freestyle, um, where we were looking at the impact that uh, developments in media, um, yeah. especially in distribution media, kind of specifically had in the development of architectural styles and looking at that timeline it becomes quite clear we also extracted some specific moments uh, and stories that um, that really told that relationship uh, in very interesting ways and in that project we were already bringing up this um the the potential impact of um technologies such as uh, a artificial intelligence at that time, um, we were, in order to make it more relatable and understandable, we were talking specifically about Pinterest, mm -hmm. uh, which many architects hate. <laughs> <laughs> many honey-do lists hate too. I'm just going to throw that out there. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I guess like clients and Pinterest boards and that people think is very annoying. However, I think that is so interesting because yeah. it allows you to communicate something without having to put it into words. Yep, visually, you don't for need sure. To know what a style is called, you don't need to describe it into words, uh, but you can define it with an array of um, of images, and then it's like you get it, you get it. Yeah, yeah. hopefully, <laughs> both get it. Um, so I have found it quite uh, surprising that the the way that AI applications that output images have the basis on text. I mean, now we have, like, there is different methods, but it seems like the ones that have been used the most are text to image. And that that was very uh, surprising, uh, yeah. this to me. I never mm -hmm. thought it would go that way. I really thought it would be, it would go the image to image. Yeah, because that's what we were so excited about. Like, why we, in this research project, we parallel the printing press with Pinterest. Yeah. Because it's one of many tools, and it's a company, whatever, but what it represents we think is so interesting and we we speak about this idea of architecture at the speed of the spoken word which is essentially something we thought we would reach by 2040 or something probably much earlier now by the speed of which ai is evolving but basically a moment when you can be inside of a fully believable virtual environment that's 3d and you can speak or you can select what you want it to be like and it changes in real time as yeah basically the, the speed of your thoughts essentially and it's something that 
God knows what it would be like when we get there. But we do work with it like most creative people on a daily basis and try and integrate it into the way we work. But it's, it's, and we use also the new um, features of ChatGPT and others to do research. I've been doing a lot of big research projects where for basic things, we will just ask it, like, did this appear in this book? Where was right. it mentioned? How many times? Can you find any other examples, etc.? I mean, it's an incredible, incredible tool. Yeah. I mean, said that also we realized, you know, we did a project a couple of years ago called Value in the Virtual, where we speak about uh, and investigate, like, how do you value virtual things? Because um, they're made in such different ways. And when we, we still teach, and when students bring in image images that are generated through AI, you realize that you, not because you dislike the process, because I really don't mind, but yeah, you realize that your value system is completely different. It's not more valuable than a stock image. Like you, if, if someone brings in a stock image, yeah, their own creative work, it's like, no, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, that's not why we're, why we're here. And stock images are great, especially if the process of finding them is really efficient, but it's not parallel to, yeah, to creative work somehow. How are you using it? You were saying that you're. We, uh, it's so funny to hear you say that because you, I, we almost think we actually have had Pinterest boards that are associated with projects. Cause it's, I mean, it's essentially, it's a, it's a, it's a easier way to get to a mood board, you know, to show to a client. And so one of the primary ways, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways we're using it on the back end for scripting and for some things that, um, just are, are make our tools more efficient, but on the creative side, we've been using it to create images to help that communication because I, I could not agree with you more, Laura, that the, uh, if a client isn't going to understand it in visuals, having written it out would not make any difference. And so having the visuals and, and even more so for us, as I'm, I'm sure for you, it is, it's getting what they don't like about the images is just as important about what they do like. And so we'll use mid journey or, or stable diffusion to create images that go along with what our style or vision is for a project and then get their reactions to it so that we're able to kind of, when we, when we arrive at a, at the end of the project, it's, it's, there's no surprises. And, and in fact, to what you were saying, Frederick, the process, the iterative process of creating those images, there's a space there for inspiration where the computer doesn't know, the computer only knows what I've told it to, to do. And I, there's an interpretation there that happens that they'll send things back that I wasn't thinking, but I was like, oh, well, maybe that starts a new rabbit trail that, that brings about a, a whole nother aspect of the project. So it's, um, it's been, it's been a lot of fun to, I have not lost time like I have with <laughs> generative AI where all of a sudden, two hours later, I went to get one image and I've, you know, gotten a whole nother idea that has come out of it. So, um, but it's, it's been, it's been an, it's been an incredible tool. And I'm, I'm excited too, to see, cause I, I know that we are just scratching the surface. There are going to be people much smarter than me that come up with, um, really, uh, unthinkable ideas at the current state. That'll be a, a super easy stretch for them. Yeah, to that. And, and the different, I mean, what, because what I find exciting is to see the different tools that are being developed. Mm -hmm. So what will be the potential input that we will be able to give? 
I mean, like following that logic, like, okay, well, if now an AI that creates PowerPoints and now one that does blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Not what, and the, what the prompt is, I, is what I find really interesting. I never expected that it would begin with a text, text yeah. that that would be the first thing. Now it seems to be making a lot of sense. And I think it has become a very beautiful process where mm -hmm. it's like, almost like you have to be a, a writer or a poet to like, and crafting those sentences. Yeah, totally. Like, my God. Uh, but then like, what would be the other means? Uh, of input, this kind of has like really uh, opened my mind to like yeah. got possibilities for communicating um, ideas. And the moment that we can feed 3D models and how will we be in which form, like what is the reading that it will make of that? I, sh I think that's well. There's there's a whole. I, I I totally agree, and it's it's been interesting because we did a we did a presentation not too long ago on generative AI. And just as popular, we we did um, we remade um, profile pictures for all the people that were in the 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 presentation. <laughs> and just as popular as the profile picture, uh, we made the creative choice to put the prompt underneath it. And it was they we got just as many comments about the way the prompt was crafted as we did the actual image because there there is there's an art to it, and the way the computer weighs the different elements that you're giving it is is really interesting. So I'm excited to see how that goes. It feels like the next frontier might be extraterrestrial spaces. Do you have any any interest in doing things off world? Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, I I think I think we I we have thought about it because in in um I mean in May of this year, I mean in 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 a month we're going to be in a panel with with an astronaut speaking about space design. Uh but like an actual an Italian man who has been to the International Space Station. Oh, that's awesome. Speaking about this. And uh, we have not done any work along those lines, but I think what's so interesting with with um, thinking about designing for non-Earth uh, mm -hmm. inhabitation is that it, it's, it kind of coincides with the ability to inhabit a space remotely. And the... I think that's the way we're coming at it. And that's what we're preparing this kind of way to think or to talk to an actual astronaut, like someone who's actually been to space about yeah. the question of like, of human experience and why is it so important that we bring our bodies there if we can bring everything else apart from the body to a place. Cause we do a lot of work with, you know, what does it mean to inhabit an avatar? How much can you inhabit an avatar? Do a lot of research and we you know like the work that jeremy bielsen done at stanford talking about what he calls humuncular flexibility the fact that the human body can so easily accept other limbs than the ones we have like a tail or a third arm and thinking about all the possibilities of doing that clearly it seems right now like the trajectory is to bring bodies to space uh, and not the the minds, the senses, the other uh, things. In space to us. Yeah. 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 So I think that that's something that we're really interesting because it's pretty obvious that, you know, we're not going to stop trying to go to space. For sure. We're not going to stop trying to transcend and bring our, our senses beyond the bodies as we have, you know, like all the research we've been doing on media history. That's really so much technology is about, uh, you know, extending the senses. So like, I think that's the way we're, we're coming at it. Um, I love that. It, it, it will, you know, thing out. 
the the thing is is while there are definitely you know different needs and different um external um you know circumstances for the design the simple fact of the matter is it's still like you said it's a human experience like we still there still needs to be that expression of design and and it's you're human whether you're here on earth or in space and and there's a greater opportunity to do different things there but there's still got to be that that uh, that common human shared experience yeah i think i think it would be a massive thing also to anthropomorphize objects that we put in space the fact that like the rover has a name and we imagine its limbs as a i feel like the the, the only reason why people today are like they today are interested in what happens with these things that you can imagine it as an as a little body of some kind of mind or consciousness and i think that's maybe where we will it will probably seem unnatural but i think we'll start to really really do that a lot with the things we send into space so that we can keep our bodies on earth which i think is the only sensible thing to do yeah and, mm, that you can have like a pet in space well i mean i can infuse like or like something that you care for in yeah, space. Like, yeah. yeah actually send robots with yeah. human shapes into space that will have names and we can see what they do and we will feel and that the purpose of going to space will be more more connected with the necessity of imagining what it's like to experience it if we can kind of overlay our own experiences onto yeah. on human body well uh i love it i'm i'm so thankful for the conversation and just getting to know y'all i i'm i'm hopeful Maybe when I get out to Spain this summer, I'll see if I can't find a way to get over to y'all's offices and we'll go grab some coffee or something. But thank you so much for being on the on the podcast today. Thank you so much for watching and listening. We'll have links below uh, for all of the ways to uh, experience Space Popular as well as uh, connect with Lauren Frederick. And make sure to check us out next time.